0: All right. Great job, choir. Reverend Tyson, thank you so much. Well, this week has been one of great rest and relaxation. As I was away, I was studying this scripture for preparation for today's sermon. And wow, if Amos didn't come and punch me right in the mouth. These are some very strong words, and no doubt some of you are sitting in the pews fearful that this is going to be a hell, fire, and brimstone type of service. But rest easy, folks. There's grace within these prophetic words. But before we get there, I wanted to explore a little bit, if I could, the word gate, G-A-T-E. What comes to mind when I say that word? I wonder if more than half of you are probably thinking of a literal gate that has a swinging door, but that's not the type of gate I'm talking about. I'm talking about the type of gate that is associated with any type of scandal, You might remember in 1972, the word gate was attached to the word water for one of the biggest scandals in American politics as people broke into the national headquarters of the Democratic Party to look for results for that year's election. It ultimately led to Richard M. Nixon resigning from the office of presidency. And since that time, the word Gate has been associated to anything and everything that people believe to be scandal, though some of them might have varying degrees of seriousness. Who here remembers deflate gate that was when the New England patriots were accused of deflating the footballs so that Tom Brady could throw them further. And since I'm not a Tom Brady fan, I have to believe it's true. What about Envelope Gate? You remember that one when the presenters at the Oscars received the wrong envelope and therefore presented Best Picture to La La Land incorrectly when it was really Moonlight? Oh boy, that was a huge scandal. And I just imagine the conversation backstage when the people had to go up to the people of La La Land and say, we're actually gonna have to take that Oscars back from you and give it to them. How about Slapgate? That was also in the Oscars. It's when Will Smith came up on stage and literally slapped the taste out of Chris Rock's mouth after he insulted his wife. That was a huge scandal, wasn't it? But not really. You see, we oftentimes are associating the word gate to things that are more for our entertainment, our curiosity. We've kind of lost the whole gravitas that should be associated with the word scandal, which always is implying that people are being taken advantage of and therefore are being wronged in a fundamental way That is not only bad for them, but is seen with great concern in the eyes of God. That's why I think the word gate is not really anything new. You might notice that the title to this sermon is Fruit Gate. Because God is telling Amos that there's an ongoing scandal in Israel, the northern kingdom, in about the 8th century BCE. He's saying to Amos that this basket of fruit that you see, sure, it might speak words of prosperity and richness. And the fact that these people have arrived and made it but In the eyes of God, it represents his forthcoming wrath, because in order to produce this basket of ripe fruit, they've done so by taking advantage of people that are likewise made in the image of God. Specifically, they've coerced and taken advantage of the poor, They do so by selling them wheat with unfair scales. People are paying more for the price of grain that it's actually worth. And not only that, many times they're putting in the sweepings of grain in with the actual kernel. It means that the people, the brokers of power, were actually selling the poor dust. Something with no nutritional value, but we're still likewise charging them the full asking rate. And all the while, as people get richer, they think that they're doing right by their creator. So they go into the temple and they pretend to have worship. And they also have religious festivals in which they pretend that all is well. It's become a routine pattern, a cycle of sin, which they've become so blinded to the ways in which they are wronging people and thereby wronging God that they need a serious wake-up call. That's why God tells Amos, I'm about to tell you exactly what's to happen I'm about to bring a judgment on Israel that will wake them up from their spiritual slumber and bring them back to their senses so that once again they might be able to align themselves with my will. For my will for all of those who follow me is always Treating others as neighbors, treating others as people who are likewise made in my image. In other words, if you profess to follow God and thereby also mistreat your neighbor, you are therefore professing that you are a fraud. And God says, I ain't got time for that. So God tells Amos that soon and very soon, in fact, in the year 721 BCE, the nation of Assyria will come and conquer the northern kingdom known as Israel. It will be brought down to dust and the people that were once celebrating what they thought was the good and right worship of the people in the temple will see their songs turn to wailing. The rich who once wore fancy cloaks and tunics and hats will be replaced with sackcloth and ashes. They will experience a darkness in the land that will represent not only a physical eclipse, but moreover, a spiritual darkness And hunger for the spirit of God will be removed from the hearts and the minds of the people. And though people journey east to west and north to south, there will be no relief. Yes, this is God's punishment that is in store and is forthcoming, but it's not without purpose. You see, many people look at passages like this in Amos chapter 8 and say, How can God be a loving God if he punishes? Well, it all depends on the motive behind that punishment. Proverbs 3.21 says, Like a loving father, so the Lord punishes his children whom he loves. The following quote also gives further insight into why punishment comes from a place of love. Anthony H. Evans writes, suffering overcomes the mind's inertia, develops the thinking powers, opens a new world, and drives the soul to action. Don't you see? God's punishment for this people is also this mindless cycle of mistreatment of others can finally be broken, and the people that profess to follow God can actually return to worshiping God because you can have all the church services and religious festivals you want to, but if you leave and you mistreat your neighbor, you are tempting God's judgment upon you. This is something that Jesus struggled with mightily. You might remember this interaction that happened between he and the Pharaohs and, excuse me, the Pharisees and the keepers of the law in Luke chapter seven, where he gives them various woes, not like slow down woes, but like trouble is coming woe. Each of these woes that he gives the Pharisees happen as a response when Jesus has sat down at the meal of a Pharisee's home, surely with the tax collectors and the sinners. The host of the party says, hey, Jesus, you didn't wash your hands before you're eating, and now you're unclean. And Jesus said, let me tell you what really makes you unclean. He goes through a litany of Pharisees who profess to follow God, but yet keep rules and regulations that are so heavy and burdensome that people can't possibly complete them. They become discouraged to follow God, and they actually give up. So, too, he also talks about Pharisees that give tenths or tithes of everything, including the spices and herbs from their garden, but... They are not generous with other people. It's at that point that one person says, Jesus, when you talk this way, you insult us. And Jesus says, I don't care. He keeps on going and further lamb those who profess to follow God, but yet mistreat those that share the same image of their creator. Don't you see God's judgment and wrath is always dependent upon how we as a society and a church treat other people. It matters greatly how you treat your spouse, your children, The people that you work with, the people that you work for, the people that you share church fellowship with, and the people that live on the same block as you. God says that if we are to follow him, we must, we must, we must be good neighbors. For to do anything less than, and especially to mistreat is inviting his judgment, his wrath. Jesus says, woe unto you, as in it's not looking good. You see, our heavenly father isn't that different than earthly fathers. You want to pick a fight with your pastor? You come after my child. I won't be so pastoral then. And how many of you sitting here today would not do the same. And it doesn't matter if your child is 10 or 2 or 40. If someone comes after your baby, all bets are off. The Heavenly Father is the same way. He looks at his creation, all of us, like a Heavenly Father who cares and loves so much that when Someone is mistreated, especially by those who are in power. God assures them that the wrath is coming so that they might wake up and so that we might realize that at the end of the day, what matters the most is how we treat other people. Suffering will bring about a realization, a break, a rupture of the cycle so that we can come back to our senses and declare that if we are to follow God, we are to love what God loves, and that is one another. That was the basket of fruit that was right before ancient Israel, and I believe it is before us today. We in America have... A God that isn't God. It's the God of consumerism, perhaps most typified by one day of the year, and I'm not talking about Christmas. I'm talking about Prime Day. Any of you know what I'm talking about? It's that day when anybody, everybody can go on Amazon.com and explore the many offers they have All of the machines and technology and gadgets and gizmos that we believe will make us happy are there and at a fraction of the price. This year on Prime Day, Americans spent collectively $12 billion on such things. Doing so, I'm sure, with an understanding and a belief that once they've had this thing in their possession, They will be happier because of it, more whole and full as a people, and they don't care how said product gets into their hands. They don't really want to know about the fact that it's made in offshore factories where people are treated like chattel and paid fractions of wages. They don't really care because all they want is the stuff. The stuff makes us happier, and the more stuff we have, the happier we'll be, right? But that's where the great deceit of the God of consumerism comes into play. For as we accumulate more stuff, we find ourselves further and further removed from our God in heaven, who says that your spiritual heart will never be completed by what you possess, but all the same... As we realize it, and as our garage or our pantry or our storerooms fill up, we have a yard sale or take a trip to the landfill, and with empty shelves, we return to the God of consumerism and press repeat. I think today that is one possible basket of fruit in which God is asking you, do you see what's in front of you? Do you really see it as I see it. Christians, take a step back and think for a moment with the intellect that God has given you. What's it really mean? What's it really for? And in the end, is it something that elevates our neighbor's status, our neighbor's well-being, our neighbor's wholeness? Because if it doesn't We have to ask ourselves if we too are not like the same people that Amos is condemning, saying that if we are in any way a part of taking advantage of others, we are inviting God's wrath and judgment on our lives. Because in God's view, while he does love us, ignorance is never a valid excuse. It's time to wake up. Let that summer breeze slap you across the face a little bit and come to your senses using your spiritual heart and mind to see where the baskets of fruit are in our lives. Where are the places of mistreatment that we would like to turn a blind eye to, but in so doing, we invite God's frustration and ultimately his wrath so that we might wake up. College students and youth, where are the baskets of fruit on your campuses? Employers and employees, where are your baskets of fruit in your workplaces? People that are at home keeping the house, where are your baskets of fruit? You see, I'm convinced that our problem here in Scripture is not going away. It's only manifesting itself in different forms and producing the same spiritual result. Oh, people of God, I've got a challenge for you that I want you to take and put under your study this week. It's two questions that I want you to write down, whether it's on your phone or your bulletin, and I want you to evaluate with yourself as well as with others. The first question is this. What's wrong in the world that I have become used to? What's wrong in the world that I have become used to? God will surely reveal to you a basket of fruit that you chose to ignore or to not see, and he will say, what is it really? That's question number one. And question number two is this. What can I do in order to help make it right? All of us are a part of God's plan to restore order and justice to His creation. You're not ever an innocent bystander. You can't say this does not concern me. We need people like Amos to stand up in the church and in our society and say today steadfastly and courageously that if it leads to the mistreatment of others, it's wrong no matter how many people are participating in it. We need the voice of Amos to say that if people are blessed by something, truly blessed, it's right no matter how few people are doing it. And we should always be there to say that it is wrong under any circumstance for people to make more because they make others have and be less. Oh yes, the voice of Amos is not relegated to some 8th century prophet It's to be reclaimed today by us, Christians, followers of the risen Savior in our walks and lives. So my question is, who's going to be courageous and faithful enough to do it? It starts by answering those questions, questions of evaluation, and then ultimately a commitment to try and make it better It might seem like something so small, but combined with so many others, imagine the difference it can make, especially as we continue it across the course of time, that we as a church embrace as a part of our mission to be those who always are steadfastly protecting others and looking for their well-being. Well, I've said a lot, haven't I? Gates are all over the place. Perhaps some of you are saying, why don't we talk about beard gate, pastor? What did you do, lose a razor or not take one on your vacation? But really and truly, there are gates today which need to be righted. Scandals that have taken advantage of others that need to stop. And the Lord God is counting on us to be faithful to that clause There is no plan B, there is only plan A, and it's you and me. So as we consider these things, as we think about these issues in life, which we no longer will turn a blind eye to, but will turn steadfastly towards in terms of correcting them and make it better, I ask for you to make a show of your commitment in this, our responsive hymn. It's found in page 262 of your hymn book. I love thy kingdom, Lord. As you have heard this sermon and you feel a spirit of challenge on your life and you would like for me to pray for you, I'll be down forward. If you are one who wants to profess Christ as Savior, I'm also here to speak and counsel with you. And if you are one who wants to be a part of First Baptist Church Carrollton, I likewise stand with open arms and open hearts ready to receive you here and now as you stand and sing.